All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Last week we had the whole passage in the bulletin. This week we're going to kind of zero in. We did a bird's eye sweep of that whole chapter. And now we're focusing in, we're zooming in on a particular part of creation. And hopefully, possibly, see it in a different light this morning. Now, I've told you that I've been a big fan of this book that Tim Keller has written called The Reason for God, which is out there if you'd like to take a look at it. Well, he tells of a guy named Andrew Del Banco. All right? Andrew is a humanities professor at Columbia University. And he was on a research project uh, that was involving Alcoholics Anonymous. And so he was attending AA meetings all over the country and doing his research. And at this one particular time, he was in a, a basement church in New York City. And as he said, he was listening to a crisply dressed young man who was talking about his problems. And in this person's, this young person's story, uh, he, this young person was communicating an absolute faultless story. In other words, he was without fault in all the problems and the situations that were going on in his life. Uh, he talked about the injustices and the wrongs that were done to him in terms of other people being at fault and other people hurting him deeply. And he also talked about his desire to avenge himself on all these folks that had done this to him in his life and had hurt him and have set him back and have caused him to be where he's at right now. Uh, Del Baco wrote while this was happening, every gesture gave off while he was talking, every gesture, every facial gesture, hand movements, everything was giving off the impression of a grievously wounded pride. Keller kind of put in his commentary and he said it was clear that this young man was trapped in his need to justify himself. Well, there was another person that was sitting there, and it was a man, an African-American man in his 40s. And he had dreadlocks and dressed in dark shades, and he leans over to Debaco and says, I used to feel that way too, before I achieved low self-esteem. And it got me thinking about us this morning, and particularly our passage this morning. How do you do that? How do you achieve low self-esteem. Now, I know that sounds so weird because we're wired and our culture is wired and even in the church context, we're wired in building each other's self-esteem and building a high self-esteem. But in this case, a high self-esteem was actually disintegrating to him. It was actually unraveling him as a person. So how do you achieve a low self-esteem? How do you build your life or not build your life around yourself. How does that happen? Now, there's a Pulitzer Prize book called The Denial of Death, and there's a guy named Becker, and he says this. He begins his book by noting that a child's need for self-worth is the condition for the rest of his life, or her life. A child comes in with a desire to be self-affirmed, a desire to have a sense of self to actually become themselves is the governing condition, the driving engine for his or her the rest of their life. He says it's so driving that he causes this need for cosmic significance is what he says. He says this need is so powerful that whatever it latches onto, that whatever this need hopes in and trusts, it deifies 
It makes it a God. It worships it. Do you see what he's saying? That you come into this world driving, being driven, an engine for cosmic significance. Now, wherever you go to find it, wherever you go to to hope for it, to trust in it, to grasp it and latch onto it, what you do, wherever that is, that identity basis, you deify it. You make a God out of it. You worship it, is what he's saying. And so he goes on to say, he says, you don't have to be a religious person to do this. You don't have to be a religious person to deify your career. You don't have to be a religious person to deify being a good mother. You don't have to be a religious person to deify right doctrine and right moral behavior and a certain way of living and other people's approval. It's in all of us to do that. So the question this morning is, how do you achieve a low self-esteem? I mean, how do you get over smelling yourself all day? How do you do that? I think I like this picture. I like this picture. How do you actually run with your head back and your heart pumping with joy and freedom? That you got wide open spaces. That you actually begin to enjoy people and things for their own sake and not for the insatiable need for your identity sake. How do you run with complete freedom, wide open spaces, not looking at yourself, eyes fixed elsewhere, not preoccupied with yourself, not having things going in through the grid of self? How do you live like that? Is there a place like that? Is there a place where you're home and you actually become yourself? And you actually find yourself. And you're actually overflowing with milk and honey. Is there a place, God's people? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31. Let's pick it up at 26. Then God said, let... Let's make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's read this together. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just a little pause here. So the image of God consists of male and female. That's important. For some folks, that's very, very important. Some folks tend to think, particularly men, that they're created in the image of God, and maybe their spouse or women are not. It's male and female. It's complementarian. Now, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. 
You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath in it. I mean, you get the point. He's just kind of like, I'm running out of breath, aren't you? I mean, he's just going on and on. I want you to see this incredible word here. It began in verse 28. God blessed them. This is a state of complete blessing. Whatever's going on here, and we're going to try to figure it out together. Whatever's going on there, they're getting it. Whatever abundance is there, they got it. Whatever's overflowing to them and whatever life is found there, they have it. They fit. It works. It's home. Okay? Now, let's pick it up. Let's go to 30, the end of 30. Every plant for green food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the sixth day. The word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Well, Father, we desperately need you. We need your spirit. We need you to move. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to work through our words. We need you to draw near to us. And we need you to show us Jesus and change us on the spot. So, O Lord, would you further your great and compassionate and loving purposes for each of us this morning. I pray those that do not know you come to trust in you and be justified. And I pray for all of us that do, that you would further us and deepen us a hunger and thirst for you, and at the same time, a taste and see that it's true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today what we're doing is we're going to travel to a very distant place. We're actually going to hike to a faraway place that's so far away that no one in this sanctuary has been to before. In fact, we're going to go to a distant place that is so far away that no one in all the history of the world has ever been there except two people. So I want you to think about, we're going to a place that's so distant, it's so far away, that trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of people, as many people that have been on the face of this earth, have never been there except two people, and these two people were only there for a short time. And so we're actually going to a place where no one really knows what it's like. We're going to a place that you have no comprehension of. You can't fit it into your mental capacities. You can't fit it into your appetites and your desires. You have no conception of the place we're going. None whatsoever. Now, many of us think we do, or at least we talk a good game. We pretend we know what this place is like, and we don't. Others of us, we deny the place exists outright. We say, this place doesn't exist, but inside the screaming soul the screaming soul is saying there must be a place like this or I wouldn't feel as bad as I do others of us we know the place exists but we can't get there but man we try we try with our addictions we try with our third and fourth wife we try with what people think of us We try with our careers. We try with a love relationship. We try with our boyfriends and girlfriends. 
We try with our brains, we try with our brawn, we try with our appearance, we try in so many ways to get there. But it stays so far away. Now, another word of caution before we begin. Once we get there, you're not going to want to leave. And then that's where I'm like, I never was in Boy Scouts, but I'm like that bad Boy Scout leader who says it's time to pick up camp and we got to go back to our crude camp. I know you're having fun and I know you like it here and I know this is a good place, but we're not meant to be here. We can't stay here. We don't fit here anymore. We've changed. We've broken to pieces. This is no longer our home. And when I've got to rudely interrupt our place here and take us back to our crude camp, you're not going to like it. I just want to tell you that now. Also, this is what we are going to do, though. We're going to go back to our crude camp, and then we're going to all huddle together like a team, and then we're going to build this big campfire. And we're all going to get in real close, and we're going to listen to a campfire story. And as we listen to that campfire story, maybe, just maybe, you'll become yourself for the first time. And that's our goal. So it's a big goal. So I want you to think about that. Before we even get into this passage, you've got to ask yourself, why is this passage here? And you know what the answer is? The answer is to make you become yourself. This passage is here to actually help you find yourself. Remember who this passage is written to. People who do not know themselves. They've come out of slavery. They've been in exile for 400 years. They, they have distant recollections of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is he? There's nothing written down. There's no book in the Bible that's been written yet. There's just been a story told from generation to generation. Little snippets, little pictures, little glimpses. But you've got 400 years of people who have lost their way and do not know who they are. Now do you see why when Moses goes up before God and he says, listen, I've got to go to these people and they're going to ask me, who is Yahweh? Who are you? What am I going to tell them? Now you see what he's saying. That's 400 years of not knowing God. It's 400 years of not knowing yourself. It's 400 years of being out of step broken to pieces, not knowing who you are. And this passage is written to put you back together again. Okay? All right. So let's go to this faraway place. Are you ready to begin? All right, here's how we begin. We go to this faraway place, and the first thing you see, I want you to, here's what happens. There's some point in time in, in eternity when eternity was interrupted with a voice that called out into the wilderness and out into the darkness. And this voice said, let there be. And when that happened, it was instantaneous, what is called divine fiats. And all of a sudden, these creation kingdoms just appeared, and it was so. You had the creation kingdom of light appeared. You had the creation kingdom of sky, the creation kingdom of the seas You had the creation kingdom of dry land and vegetation. 
the first day, the second day, the third day. Let there be, and all these things came to be. And then you hear these words again, let there be, and now in these creation kingdoms, creation kings came to rule over them. You have the stars, and you have the sun and the moon to rule over the creation of light. You have the creation winged creatures, these kings that came in to rule over the sky. You had the sea creatures that came to rule over the seas. You had the land animals that came to rule over the, their land and the earth. And then all of a sudden it changes. And what happens is, is you have this voice speaking, let there be, let there be. Days four, five, and six, the kings show up. But then it switches, and on the sixth day, after the first act, it's not let there be, it's let us make. And all of a sudden, you shift from third person to first person. The voice gets very personal. The voice gets very intimate. The voice is actually speaking something that's very binding to him. The words used in Scripture, it's called covenantal. It's a binding relationship. It's the most intimate relationship you can have. It's a pressed-in closeness. It's so personal. It's intoxicatingly intimate. And you have this voice speak, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now in the ancient Near East, the time that Genesis is written, I want you to think about this. A king in his kingdom. So now the words of Genesis, the first five books, are being written in an ancient Near Eastern context. They're not written in the 21st century context. They're written in the ancient Near East. In those days, kings in their faraway realms and regions would put up images of themselves in places that they did not reside, that they were not physically present. And what these images did is they reminded the people throughout the whole realm of his fame and his presence over all things. Now, his fame and his presence, these images that were set up. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, those of you that were with us in Daniel, remember what he did? He made that huge one, that big one. And then he lost his mind in the next chapter. And that's what happens when we do that. When we build our own self-esteem, we lose our mind and we lose ourselves. So what we happen is kings start setting up images all over, but they don't do it in abstraction. You know what I mean by that? In other words, when the people of the realm would look at this image, they don't think like this. Oh, yeah, there's our king. That's our king. He's about six feet tall. He's got reddish-brown hair. Carries a sword in the right hand. And it's kind of abstract. Yeah, he, he's, he's a type A personality, believe me. Or he'd be a D on the disc test. You know, he kind of favors prunes over peaches. His favorite music is Bach or country. They don't do that. When they would see those images, it didn't give an image of the king abstractly. What happened was it reminded them that they were bound to him. That his authority and power and wisdom and might and sovereignty was bound to them. They were in a binding relationship with him. He is our God. We are his people. That's the picture. And so what we get here, when this thing gets very, very personal, and you are Adam and Eve, the typical human being, 
are communicated and created, what God says is that you are an image of the king of the world. You're my image. Now, there's a lot of mystery here, tons of mystery here. In fact, if you read the journals and the commentaries, good night. What does the image of God specifically mean? People are writing unbelievable stuff about it. I just finally had to put it away. I can't do anymore. I've had enough. But what's interesting is that we can all see in this text two aspects of the image of God that you can see very, very clearly, and you don't have to read a journal to do it. All right? And the first one's found in verse 28. I want you to look at verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill over the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. What I want you to see in verse 28 is God speaks to them. He's speaking to them. And not only that, in verse 29, he addresses Adam and Eve in the you. It's very personal. And I want you to see that in the relationship, what's happening here, the first thing we can see about the image of God is that it's intensely personal. That these image bearers of the high king of heaven on earth while he's in heaven, that the relationship, the image bearing relationship is one that's intensely personal. It's intoxicatingly relational. It's deep in knowing each other. And the the reality of it is, is that they're hanging on every word he speaks. And every word that is spoken from the king is like honey in the heart. It's, it's what they were made for. So I want you to see that right here at the very beginning, the first thing that we all can say about the image of God is that you were made to know God deeply, intimately, to hang on every word that comes from his mouth like it's honey in your heart. Sweet. Now, come on, husbands. Do you remember what it was like the first time you met your wife before she was your wife? Do you remember? Some of you got to go way back, but you can do it. Right? Did your pulse quicken? Boom, boom, boom. There she is. Did you know when she was in the room? I mean, did you want to know her? Did you want to talk to her? Good night. The first time I saw my then-to-be wife, I was going to explode if I didn't get to know her. In fact, I can remember it real clearly, and we talked about this on a special occasion the other night. I could remember it very, very clearly. It was on Red Square. It was two weeks after the coup with Gorbachev. It was the first time the Soviet Union was actually opening up in 75 years to hear the gospel. And all these missionaries, girls and boys, are out there at Red Square. We just arrived, just got off the airplanes. Everybody's excited and kind of awestruck about being on Red Square. We're tanks and we'd seen photographs and the missiles and the power seat of the evil empire. And we're all there and so excited to reach the Russians for Christ, except I wasn't there to reach the Russians for Christ at that moment. I was there to reach Nancy for myself at that moment. <laughs> and so there was a problem, though, and that was as we we're all out there, she's just circulated by a bunch of missionary boys. And one in particular is chatting her up, down, all around, and that was a major problem. <laughs> but my training in wrestling comes in at great advantages sometimes. 
All I needed was a couple of inches. All I needed was him to slightly turn his head to the left. That's all I needed, and I got it. I performed the first standing switch perfectly. And now I'm here, and she's here. I got to know her. Adam and Eve were made to know God in an intoxicating way. They couldn't wait to know him more. Every word that he spoke, they hung on. They treasured. It went to the deepest places of who they are. Do you remember what that was like? It's a faraway land. It's a land we don't live in right now. The second thing you can see here is that Adam and Eve were made to display God's fame. That's pretty clear. What's clear here is they were made to display God's fame. They weren't made to display another creature's fame, and they weren't made to display their fame. It's real clear in the text. How? Look at verse 26. The first thing that's said after, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, look at the first thing that's said. What is it? Let them have dominion. So the very first thing, you can see it, I can see it. You don't have to read a textbook on it. You don't have to read a commentary. First thing is you were made to know God deeply. The second thing about image bearing is you're made to display Him, display His fame. You were made to be a copycat king. You were made to be a king on earth that reflects the image of a king in heaven. Let Him have dominion over all the things I just made. In other words, you were made to personally put on display the fame of the king in your thoughts, in your heart, in your words, in your actions, kingly character, kingly conduct, radiating the glory of God in all things and above all things, in your relationships, in your work, in everything you do. A tremendous intoxicating purpose. I mean, the stuff that when you do it, it's like, Your head runs back. You're running full steam, wide open spaces. It's meaningful stuff. Tremendously meaningful stuff. Paul Tripp tells of a time when his son was four years old. And his son came to him one day, and it was came up, and he could tell he wanted to talk, and they sat down to talk, father and son on the couch. The son, four years at the time, confides in the father his deepest desires for the future. Daddy. When I get older and grow up, I want to be a lion. The father thinks to himself, well, who wouldn't want to be a lion with all that king of the jungle stuff that it's talked about today, right? So he decides that this is a perfect teaching moment since he's a seminary professor that he would have an anthropological, theological discussion with his four-year-old child. And so he went on this harangue for a monologue for a while and his son's listening intently to him and finally he says, son, does that... Does that make sense? Distinction between creature, image of God, makes sense? And his son looked up at him with all the confidence in the world and says, Yes, Daddy, it sure does. When I grow up, I want to be a giraffe. (laughs) And he hugged his dad and walked away. Now, his son got it right the first time. Adam and Eve were made to be the king and queen of the jungle. To be a visible, tangible, breathing, thinking, feeling, 
working, acting image of the king on earth. Intoxicating purpose. But again, that's a far, far away place. We don't know what that's like. Now, before we go back to our crude campsite, we got to get the point. And here's the point. Adam and Eve were themselves. They became themselves. They found themselves. Their defining, determining, driving identity was vertical, not horizontal. They became themselves vertically. I want you to look at verse 21. This is very fascinating to me. Verse 21, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with the waters, swarm. What does it say? According to what? Their kinds. Now go to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to what? Their kinds. Go on to verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to what? Their kinds. And the living livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to their kind. And then you get to verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you see it? Do you see it? Man is not made according to his own kind. According to any horizontal feature or part of creation, man and woman are made according to God's kind, vertically, in a deep, profound relationship with God and a driving, purposeful display of his fame in all that they do. That's who they are. But we got to go. It's time to uproot. We got to go back. We don't belong here. See, we got to go back to our crude camp because every single one of us try to find ourselves, define ourselves, fundamentally put ourselves back together, not vertically, but horizontally. That's what we do. Every single person here struggles with building and becoming themselves horizontally. According to your own image. According to the kind of a creature or a job. Or an idea. Or a doctrine. Or right living. Or moral or spiritual performance. Some success and achievement. Physical possessions. And we're falling to pieces as a result. This is why we can't shake criticism. When you're criticized, you ever wonder, why can't I shake it? I mean, I play that tape all the time. I argue that tape all the time. Why can't you and I shake criticism? You know why? Because we're becoming ourselves horizontally. We're becoming ourselves based on our performance, and criticism is a knock on our performance, and we just died. Criticism goes to the very core of who you are and you die. That's why you can't shake it. And that's why we complain and that's why we criticize others. 
because we build our life and define our life according to our performance and we feel superior to others. So we're free to knock them down. We're free to criticize others because we've got our act together. That's what we do. Every day, every day, you have hundreds of thoughts, hundreds of desires, hundreds of words, hundreds of actions that do not display or image God at all. They display an image, a deified identity. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, if your identity is found horizontally, which we all do, if it's found in being a good father, being a good mother, being a good friend, if it's found in your career, whatever it is, if that's the case, you will image it. So when it's knocked down, you'll image anxiety and fear and anger. When you're trying to maneuver it and get it, you'll image manipulation and demandingness and control. You will always image whatever identity you deify. That's what we do. So we don't belong there. We don't belong in Genesis 1. That's not our home. We're outside the camp. And the Bible calls that which we do sin. It's broken our relationship to God. It's broken our reflection of God. We've broken. We've lost ourselves. That's why we can't stay there anymore. So now, here's what we have to do. Does everybody feel that? Everybody get that? You have to. You're not going to hear what I'm about to say next until you feel the fact that you and I are building and becoming ourselves and finding ourselves horizontally, not vertically. And then you've got to find which one you're doing it in and which one you struggle with, because you do. And the way that you can find it is, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but when you start seeing images that do not display God, His fame, His character, His conduct, you've got to ask yourself, where is that coming from? That image is coming from a deified, distorted identity. That's what's happening. Okay? Now, here's the story. We've got to huddle up. We've got to gather around. We've got to get close. Teamwork here. We're going to listen to this campfire. Build it big. And here's the story. I want you to hear the story. When the Spartans would prepare for battle, they'd wrap twigs around their wrists. So they'd take a twig, wrap it around their wrist, snap off the end, drop it into a basket, head out to battle. On their way back from battle, they would file past the basket, reach in, find the broken twig's mate. Okay? Now, Nate Self. I told you he's a Silver Star Award. He won the Bronze Star. He got the Purple Heart. He said, quote, When I returned home to reclaim the other half of my twig, the one on my wrist had been mangled by war. It just didn't fit. Nothing seems to fit anymore. I don't know who I am. Sin has mangled your image of God. Nothing fits anymore. Now a Savior comes in the perfect image of God. And he reaches into that basket of mangled broken, jarred, unclaimed twigs. 
and pulls it out and attaches you to himself. Now you fit. Now you're home. And he'll never let you go. You're his. You become yourself vertically, not horizontally. Can I give you a couple specific directions from this? Okay, thanks. Some of you need to trust the Savior come in the perfect image of God now, right now. In other words, you need to trust him to attach you to himself. And when you trust him to attach you, broken, mangled, you don't fit anymore. You don't know who you are anymore. And he attaches you to himself. And what happens is that being attached to him, his death now pays for your sins. When you trust in him and him attaching you to himself, his resurrection is now your new life and your new identity. In other words, now you are connected vertically. Now you are made what you were made for is to know God personally in a deep and profound way. Now that relationship's wide open for you. You have a new life. And also now you begin to communicate and put on display His glory and His fame. You now become a reflector and a mirror of God. And you have this insatiable intoxicating purpose in your life now. All right. Now we all, though, here need this morning to repent of our deified, distorted identities. Because we all have them. So we all need to do that. The question is, how do you do that? How do you repent? Now you could repent this way. You could repent by saying, well, you know, I, I see where I do this and I have this kind of action. I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. Change me. And move on. Or we could be a little more intentional and it could go a little more deeper. And what I mean by this is that I want you to now don't just identify the fruit of your sin. Identify the root of your sin. Another way of saying it is go behind the front sin to the sin behind it to change. What I mean is this. In other words, your behavior is fruit, but there's a root behind it. And so in order to repent fully and to actually change in a certain area, you've got to get beyond the fruit stuff. You've got to get to the root stuff. You've got to get beyond to the sin that you see, like your anger and your anxiety and the harsh words you spoke or the email you sent or the way you treat someone or however you see it. And you've got to get behind to what caused that? Why did I do that? And so what we need to do is, let's say, take anger. Anger expressed in thoughts, anger expressed in words, anger expressed in action. Let's take complainingness, thoughts, words, and actions. Take those things that are clearly, you see, okay, I know these are wrong, this isn't good. All right? I want you to go to the root level and you've got to ask yourself, why did you do this? And the reason why you did this is because you think you must have something to live. You deified something. You got angry because you had to have it, and you didn't get it, so you got angry. You got angry because you had to have it because it is now life to you. You complain because you're not getting what you want, and what you want, you must have. So what you want that you must have, you now deify. Now, possibly, 
This is one possibility. Possibly one of the reasons why you're angry and one of the reasons why you're complaining is that you've deified a false identity. Maybe it's because you didn't get the achievement or the performance or someone rejected you. Maybe it's because you built your life around a certain horizontal identity factor and someone's keeping you from it or someone got in your way of it or someone knocked you down. And that's why you're angry and complaining. And so we need to go to that level as we think about this, okay? All right. Now what I want you to do, too, is that while that's happening and you've identified the root and you've identified the fruit, now what I want you to do is imagine that you have a Savior come in the perfect image of God, take you and attach you to himself. And now you have divine forgiveness for your fruit and your root. And now you have his loyal, binding, gracious, merciful love for you. And to actually know him and that you are now being put back together and finding yourself in his acceptance of you and his love for you and in a deep, profound way of knowing the king of glory. To have him speak to you and it be words of honey in your heart. To actually know him and be known by him that you are a child of God and you are a brother or sister of Christ. And let that begin to shape you. And that you've been called in such a, you've been attached to him just as he now is the perfect image and the perfect display of the fame of God. You're now being cleaned up. And now now in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions, you have an intoxicating purpose to put God on display and to put his fame on display in all things. Okay. We've come full circle. What we've done is we went to a place that no one really has been before. And a place that we now know we don't belong. Because something has so radically happened to wreck our relationship with God and wreck our display of Him, which the Bible calls sin, that we're outside the camp, we're outside of that garden, we're outside of Genesis 1. But the good story is that there is an image of God a Savior who came perfectly to take you jarred, broken twigs and attach you to himself. And now you find yourself. And now you become yourself vertically, not horizontally. Amen.